This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Hamish Penman and welcome to our podcast. Ed and Alistair are living it up on their holidays, so today I'm joined by Damon Evans, Asia editor, and Andrew Dykes, content editor. How are we doing this morning, chaps? Good, good, thank you. Yeah, good, thanks, Hamish. Been a been a busy week. It's been a very busy week indeed, and I hot-tailed it to Norway for two days to do some nice uh, interviews for the supplement in September, so keep an eye out for that, but yeah, was... Not a great time for you guys, but you were you were exploring a rig. Yeah, you'll see some nice photos of me looking very perplexed at some uh, some big objects and trying to make out that I have any idea what what I'm being told about. But no, it was a great trip. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Dolphin Drilling. Uh, but yeah, keep an eye out on that for coming to a supplement near you soon. Um, but today I'm going to kick us off uh, with news from the west of Shetland. Uh, no, it's not Cambo for a change, uh, but it could soon be elevated to such status in uh, public consciousness. Um, Equinor has submitted the environmental statement for Rosebank, the 300 million barrel or so field. Uh, it's one of the North Sea's largest untapped discoveries, and it's also got Suncor Energy and Ithaca Energy on the books. Uh, so that document has gone to Opreds. Uh, it was published on their website yesterday. Uh, and was then shortly removed after about a couple of hours. Not entirely sure why, but we might have a little hazard hazard a guess at that shortly. Um, but yeah, this document is a required step in any new oil and gas development, and it's now up to them to approve it, so uh, all eyes on that. Um, but it did come with a few kind of tasty morsels of information that we hadn't before been privy to. So first oil from Rosebank Equinor is expecting it at the end of 2026, Q4. It will be delivered in two phases, the first of which will comprise uh, four production wells and uh, three water injection wells. Gas will be exported through a new line to the uh, existing West of Shetland pipeline system and oil will be offloaded from the NAR FPSO using uh, tankers and a deal has already been struck with Altera infrastructure for that particular vessel. And Equinor says uh, in the statement that by kind of reusing the ship rather than going with a new build as had been mooted, um, it will significantly reduce the emissions and lower the cost of the developments. Um, so new flow lines will be hooked up to NAR and yeah, for, so from the end of 2026, we could have a huge new oil field uh, in play. So now that the ES has been submitted, it's up to Opreds, the offshore petroleum regulator for environment and decommissioning, uh, to approve it. They'll remember last year they did knock back Shell's environmental statement on Jackdaw. So there's it I mean, not a president there, but that's quite an interesting thing. They have obviously now reneged on that. And Jackdaw, is, uh, as we said a couple of weeks ago, has got the go-aheads. So the submission of this document is a really big step on the road towards getting Rosebank up and running. Uh, and it comes after there has been quite a lot of speculation, specifically after the um, windfall tax and energy profits levy that Equinor was looking to walk away from the fields, um, that it didn't was looking to ditch Rosebank, which has been a tough nut to crack. It's in a particularly difficult area to produce. So it is always it has always been a challenge to get it up. But I mean, this Equinor has always denied these reports and, and this should put an end to them once and for all, you'd hope. So interestingly, yeah, as I mentioned, the uh, the assessment was removed quite quickly from the UK government's website. Not quickly enough. Um, we had already downloaded a copy by that point and got it up online. So <laughs> uh, one nail one energy voice, I think. But um, <laughs> Not entirely sure why it might be, but, but you can hazard a guess that Equinor didn't want it to detract, perhaps, from a major economic report it's released on Friday morning. So that's analysis it's carried out with uh, Wood McKenzie and Four Energy, hope I pronounced that right, uh, into the financial and employment benefits of, uh, of Rosebank. So the headline figures... 
8.1 billion of investments, over 4 billion in capex, as we've previously reported, and 3.6 billion in operating expenses across the, the life of the fields. So it's uh, looking a long way down the road, obviously, but decommissioning costs are estimated at just shy of £400 million. Uh, and the big takeaway, I think, and the one that will grab a lot of headlines, uh, Rosebank is expected to employ up to 1,600 direct full-time equivalent jobs. Uh, nearly 1,200 of those will be based in the UK. So that's a really significant number. Not sure how many of those will be new, but certainly some of them will be, or if a large proportion of them will be. Um, so that's going to prick quite a few ears up, certainly in Aberdeen as well as uh, farther afield. So you'd hope that that might well quell some of the the negative press from certain quarters that Rosebank will uh, Rosebank will inevitably garner. Not all of it, obviously. You can smell a stop Rosebank group in the offing, but it's good to see the wheels start moving on this project. It's been a, a, a long while in development, a lot of a lot of speculation and chat about where, where would it ever happen and yet yeah, i think it's now starting to uh starting to materialize pretty rapidly so uh yeah positive to see it's a pretty um it's a pretty persuasive opening salvo from from equinor this report isn't it and they're kind of making all the right noises in terms of if i was someone looking at wanting to encourage investment in jobs they they've definitely done the right thing and ticked all the boxes with this analysis i mean i think one of the, the stats that jumped out to me was you know i think they're saying 24 for more, more than 24 billion pounds over the life of the field kind of gross value add. So that's like filtering through the supply chain and, you know, leisure and hotels and all the other things that come with, you know, extra jobs and extra workers. Pubs, pints. Exactly. That's the main metric I'm interested in. <laughs> uh, but the 2 billion a year through the life of the field, so they think it's about 1% of Scottish GDP. So, I mean, it's a, it's a good stat. I would be throwing it around too if I was developing a massive oil field west of Shetland and wanted to convince people. I mean, it was a really... Really impressive report. You spoke with their uh, their UK boss yesterday, Hamish, didn't you? I did, yeah. On a good note, it was uh, I good to speak to Anna. Always uh, the last time I spoke to him, we were addressing speculation that Rosebank was um, was looking to be canned. So uh, very much a different chat to chat to that this time. And he was, yeah, incredibly optimistic and upbeat about it. Um, and also about the environmental statement as well, and uh, and kind of the, the need for that to go through the right rigorous processes. But yeah, they've. He kind of pointed out, interestingly, that by reusing the the, F, the RFPSO, they've managed to. Well, I, I read it as kind of cut down the production or the time it's going to take to get the field online. So he says that that was the reason they're able to go for the end of 2026, which is for a field the size of Rosebank. And considering your starting development, it's not it's not a subsea tieback or something. It's going to be a whole new field that's going to be brought online. Um, and you need to get the risers hooked up to the FPSO and all those sorts of moving bits. It, uh, given it what just over four years, that seems pretty rapid to me. And there's still a lot. There's still things that need to be approved. There's still the field development plan to come, uh, and there's still FID on the project, which I think is um, uh, first quarter next year they're aiming for. So, given that, yeah, so just over four years away, and there's still a lot of uh, work to be done, a lot of hurdles to be crossed. I think that's quite a a bullish target and let's hope they can deliver it on time but it it is it's only a handful of miles away from cambo and i just can't i don't see a way where this is going to be agreeable the only thing i think the thing i think will make it less uh controversial than cambo is that shell isn't a part of rosebank and shell seems to garner so much of the negative press um from environmental groups that i think the fact that it's Equinor and it's Norwegian uh, or Norwegian state-owned might 
mean it's cut a bit of slack not much perhaps but we'll see i always feel bad complaining about this david when you're speaking from your part of the world where people are crying out for this sort of investment in these sorts of fields and we're we're kind of having this this negative optic well, pessimistic outlook for uh for, for the debate and the, for the debate that's inevitably going to come i was just going to say do the environmental groups have much power or sway i mean they're very vocal but at the end of the day do they can they influence these decisions or uh, no not really they can picket they can protest they can uh do all of the things that you can do in a civil society in a democracy but they don't really hold any of the cards other than that um perhaps they would hold them more in scotland given that the green party are in coalition up here but then energies are reserved matter for for westminster so that doesn't as it stands that might change in the next few years but let's not go down that particular rabbit hole uh change <laughs> i think though it, it is a rising tide right i think when you see you know we had uh Cambo has, has long been a lightning rod for this sort of protest. And as soon as Jack Dobb kind of came into the mix, as you kind of inferred with this, there was a splinter group that was specifically aimed at Jack Dobb, and I would expect to see targeted protests around Rosebank. I think what it will be interesting, obviously, Equinor are kind of keen to do the the right things, right? They're opening with this very kind of positive, optimistic impression of of how much investment and jobs and everything else they want to create with it let's kind of wait and see how the public reaction is and and how they are handling that criticism because they're you know they tend to be pretty good as you say and, and norwegian companies in general tend to have a pretty good handle on things like electrification emissions and it's very much tied to kind of uh, national identity i suppose as well right that everyone feels they are probably invested in offshore oil and gas a little bit more maybe than in in the uk yeah well from my one night in Norway, I'm now an expert, so I can tell you that's almost certainly the case. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll leave Rosebank there for the minute. Uh, there's probably plenty more we could chat on about that, but I think it's time now to move on to the Philippines, where there has been an election. Energy Voice presents Future Offshore, a free hybrid event at the Chester Hotel Aberdeen on Thursday, the 25th of August, 2022. As the transition gathers pace, join me, Alistair Thomas, and the industry leaders to shape the offshore agenda for the North Sea, ahead of ONS 2022 in Stavanger. The event will feature three sessions. The first is on energy security. The energy industry must meet critical production targets whilst making the transition. As a tough winter approaches, what are the options? Session two looks at the North Sea as an energy transition frontier, exploring decarbonisation in the UKCS and Norway. Where are comparisons appropriate, and what can each learn from the other? Finally, session three tackles the skills transition. What steps are required to reach the jobs and investment levels to ensure longevity of the offshore industry? In-person tickets are limited, but whether you want to join us virtually or physically at the Chester Hotel on 25th of August 2022, you can register free at future-offshore.co.uk. So, Damon, uh, energy plans in the Philippines. They've had a change at the top. Um, what's the the new uh, the new top dog saying? Yeah, Hamish. So they've got a, a new president following the elections in May. Uh, president Fernand, Fernand F- sorry Ferdinand Marcos Jr. I'll try and get that right. Uh, reiterated um, his support for more renewable energies as well as nuclear power and natural gas in the Philippines. Um, uh, in his first State of the Union address, which was in late July. Um, now, that news comes as plans to import the country's first uh, LNG cargoes have, have kind of um, stalled due to, to high prices, global high prices. 
fortunately they have they, they, well, they've been for about maybe 10 years trying to get LNG imports into the country the, the Philippines is struggling with uh, oil and gas production unlike uh, the North Sea um, the Philippines has always been the poor man of Asia in terms of exploration um, with the exception of one big field called Malampaya which Shell and Chevron started up in the early 2000s and has been provided most of the the gas for the power plants in the Philippines that field is now running down and running short of gas so um, the Philippines is kind of in a bit of a pickle much like Germany in terms of their poor kind of energy policy and planning and um, there's no there's not going to be any gas to keep the lights on soon and that that's a political headache for the politicians if they start having blackouts in Manila uh, obviously it's a headache for a politician anywhere but th- this new president coming in um, he's he's really got some pressing challenges in terms of um, power shortages to insufficient energy supplies so he's put nuclear at the top of the agenda um, more power plants more nuclear more renewables offshore wind has been talked about in the philippines and there's potential but we're a long way from that there's been um, uh, several large solar projects proposed and also the new president has um said that he will provide incentives for natural gas exploration which is which is a positive um it would be good for the malampire field and maybe extending that beyond it its current contract it's due to end in 2024 and um we're not sure yet if that field can can keep producing for much longer after that so more exploration near to that field would be helpful um and then also i mean there is hope it's not all negative it's not all doom and gloom um i was fortunate to sit down with agmp who are developing an lng import terminal in the philippines and they are optimistic that they will be able to start lng imports in december or they will be commissioning their terminal in december and that would be the country's first um import terminal successfully working if it happens now for 10 years, the Philippines has been talking about LNG imports and due to corruption issues and, and, and you know poor policy or planning or a lack of a master plan, they've never come to fruition. So if this actually happens, that they do actually import LNG, it will be a big cause for celebration and remove a lot of the, the energy security concerns. However, there is talk in the market that you know some people are skeptical if um, AGMP will actually get the import terminal up and running and um, there's another terminal in the works uh, developed by a company called First Gen which owns a lot of the power plants powered by gas from Malampire their project was due to start this year also but they've been um, they've delayed the arrival of BW Offshore's FPSO till later next year uh, due to high gas prices they're not able to import LNG based on the current spot market and they don't have a long-term contract so it's still all quite uncertain, but um, a lot of optimism around the new new president's pledge for nuclear renewables as well as gas. And, and also, sorry, I forgot to mention geothermal, hydropower, they're also in the mix. And um, yeah, Philippines has a lot of potential for, for geothermal. So we've got the full work of uh, the full works of energy projects coming uh, coming down the road in the Philippines. But I, I really enjoyed the picture that you uh, you put on your newly elected Philippines president uh, article. It looks like the 
next album artwork for the, the next seminal indie album, indie alternative album. It was a really, <laughs> that caught my eye. So if you've not not looked at that, go check that out. But I mean, on their new president, uh, generally older, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Is he well thought of? Is there a buzz of optimism around him? What's his background? So he is actually the son of a, a former president or perhaps dictator might be the word who was kind of, well, wasn't kind of, I believe he was ousted in the mid eighties. And so he has that kind of background and obviously he wants to distance himself or from, from that family legacy. And we won't go into the, the horrifics of imprisoning opponents and things like that. So um, is he well thought of? He's been elected. So he's won. The interesting thing is his vice president is the daughter of the outgoing president, um, Duterte, if I got that right. And he was well known or infamous for his crackdown on uh, drug dealers and uh, he just shot them and killed them. So there's a lot of uh, human rights uh, you know, organizations and a lot of uproar about that, obviously. So, um, yeah, he's well thought of. He's well connected another you know all these tycoons run the philippines but um talking about energy he's appointed a new secretary of energy to replace the previous one the new guy is called rafael lotilla and he is well thought of he's a technocrat he has a law background he has an understanding of the energy business uh, he served as uh, secretary of energy under a previous president president gloria from 2005 and um so yeah there's optimism that that he he will be good for the business and 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 investment assuming the the terminal does open as suggested in december i mean what are the kind of long-term contracts and and pricing and things like that looking like is that is that sustainable or are they going to kind of arrive right in the peak of of some of the highest gas prices we've seen ever you know yeah i mean it's interesting andrew so i was talking to well i talked to agmp and they're a tolling terminal and their customer is um san miguel corporation which owns a power plant that is in need of gas as malampire runs down and they've got some term contracts short and medium term i believe already kind of fixed and eventually the lng will be uh, play a bigger part of the mix in the supply to the power plant and Malampire will decrease and it will balance out and kind of blend the price in. Now, I spoke to some market sources who said that this contract was actually a bit of a dog's breakfast they'd made of it. <laughs> and there's whispers of litigation around it. So reading between the lines, maybe they can't afford it. But may, who knows what the pricing structure is? We're not privy to that. And maybe there's pressure on AGMP to get the terminal up and running. Otherwise, there might be a take or pay clause involved if they can't take the lng maybe that's why there's litigation uh agmp told me none of this is true and the market doesn't know the contract so so that's hearsay um but read it read into that what you will yeah but the other terminal which was scheduled to be the first terminal and is actually nearly built is not going ahead and delayed the fp uh, fsiu because they can't afford LNG on the spot market. They've not said that publicly either. They just said the F FSIU is being delayed like till the end of next year instead of coming this year. And and that is probably pretty clearly because of the global price of LNG and they don't have any term contract. But at the same time, if LNG prices remain elevated, then the Philippines is going to have a problem because Malampire is 
running down rapidly um and yeah they and they've got a moratorium on coal as well new coal-fired power so they've been trying to steer clear of coal but they're going to need baseload power. Seems like coal's going to make making a comeback across the world. So it'd be interesting to see whether that moratorium uh, holds for the foreseeable. We'll uh, have to keep us in the loop on that, Damon. But I think we'll uh, we'll we'll leave the Philippines just for now, and we're going to talk about pots of gold in the next segment with Andrew. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Mega Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. So, Andrew, it's been raining cash for oil companies for the for the last couple of weeks. We've had some um, some big results on uh, on Tuesday. Can you uh, fill us in on that? Yeah, this week was uh, BP's second quarterly results, which uh, this week stood for bumper profits. <laughs> uh, it's earnings underlying replacement. Cost profits of eight point four billion. So that's um, that's BP's metric. We tend to go with pre-tax energy voices. It's actually fourteen billion pre-tax, um, and their total revenues were just under seventy billion dollars. Um, I think it's the highest quarterly profit in fourteen years. It's triple the same quarter of last year, um, which even coming out of the pandemic, you know, maybe it changes the metrics slightly. Slightly, but um, it's definitely. It's definitely big, and uh, it's uh, it's an increase on last quarter as well, which was six point two billion. They beat analyst estimates, which I think were roughly around then between six and seven. Um, it's yeah, it's a huge result for them. Uh, what they're doing with that money, I think, is maybe the interesting point. So they've been re- they've been cutting debt. I think they said debt fell for the ninth consecutive quarter, so that's at just about twenty three billion dollars at the moment. They completed. Uh, a $2.5 billion share buyback over the last quarter. It was 2.3, I think, by the end of the quarter, and then they nailed that last $200,000 uh, by the end of July. So they are raising their quarterly dividend by 10% to $0.06 cents per share, and they're going to do another $3.5 billion share buyback over the next quarter. So that's $6 billion so far this year. Um, it comes at you know a really tough time for everyone globally in terms of energy, but obviously it's being felt in the UK, specifically in kind of retail energy costs, in fuel and in gas and electricity bills. Um, that has been the main kind of headline accompanying these results for, for BP. Um, Bernard Looney on an investor call kind of recognized that. He said that, you know, it, he totally understood it was a very difficult place for people in the UK and across the world. He said that BP gets it and that they want to help and that their kind of contribution to that is that they're, quote, backing Britain. Um, So he kind of, again, pointed to this 18 billion pounds they want to invest in the UK uh, over the next decade. And uh, they hope that that will create 10,000 jobs over that period. He talked about Merlach, the um, field that they want to bring online in a few years. 
And he also said that they were kind of happy to, you know, they're, they made higher profits, so they're happy to pay higher taxes. And the energy profits levy, the so-called windfall tax as well, will will kind of raise that as well. Interestingly, in the results, um, they also sort of began to quantify that. I think it's the first company that we've seen kind of beginning to put their finger in the air and try and work out what this will mean for them. So uh, in the in their results, they expected a one-off non-cash deferred tax charge of an estimated 800 million between October this year and the end of December 2025. They were at pains to say that's not the full cost of it because obviously they can claim investment allowances back. They don't know what their profits are going to be in future, but that's their kind of best uh, estimate for now is beginning to get a handle on it. I think that is interesting. That, as I say, that's the first time I think we've seen UK companies or companies involved in the North Sea begin to look at what this actually means for their bottom lines. Um, I think wider than that, though, obviously, the, the pressure and the reaction was pretty swift and pretty vicious. Uh, Friends of the Earth uh, campaigners said it was yet another obscene profit and a clear sign that our energy system is fundamentally broken. Uh, later this week, the uh, UN chief Antonio Gutierrez kind of lambasted what he called grotesque greed of oil and gas companies. He said it was immoral. Um, I think Bernard Looney did a, a pretty a pretty robust job of explaining. His, his uh, reasoning was that the BP is kind of just following the math. So he said that they, they slashed their dividend uh, during the pandemic. They cut it by 50%. And they said that they would do these share buybacks equivalent to 60% of their free cash flow. And they've just held to that. So these these big buybacks are kind of just an accounting thing. You know, they said they set a target and they're they're committed that they're going to hit it. Um, he said that the company's number one priority was a resilient dividend, and that they would continue to use forty dollars per barrel as a benchmark because that's a sort of prudent way for the company to plan. Obviously, we are we're slightly down. I think we're about ninety five dollars a barrel. Possibly, I haven't checked this morning, but you know, double essentially. That they're they're kind of well into the black with their their metrics. Um, but obviously, it's coming at a time of kind of really high profits across the oil and gas sector. Hamish, you were reporting on, on Shell last week. I think they saw kind of a similar backlash in terms of the reaction. Yeah, it was pretty much identical to be honest. I think that friend of the earth statement was copied and pasted for between the two because Shell is also uh, also very much in the black. They were <clears throat> on our metric. Yeah, we used pre, uh, pre-tax profits and they had $36.9 billion of pre-tax profits. So that's a figure around three times greater than the equivalent period also. So, I mean, these these results are kind of almost being copied and pasted across the board. All the companies are up, all the companies are doing well. And yeah, it is fueling this. It's just, it's, you can understand the anger because folk are finding it so tough at the moment. But the only way to really kind of rectify all of this is to up supply and up supply quickly of uh, of oil and gas, but also of renewables and and the likes. And Shell and BP have obviously got stakes in those games now. Um, so it's uh, the onus is now on these companies to to spend the cash wisely to to invest in energy security, energy supplies, um, because that's what everybody is waiting to see happen. So well, let's let's hope that that is the case. I mean. Um, the, I mean, the thing that annoyed me the most about BP's results was Bernard Looney saying math rather than maths, but um, that's just been incredibly pernickety about the whole thing, I think. But <laughs> You've got to appease the Americans. Damon, I'd, I'd be interested, you know, has, is this kind of tracked over your side of the world? I mean, I, I think 
in other kind of media, is there a sense that these are grossly inflated profits, or is there a sense that you know this is as as Mr. Looney has said, just just maths, <laughs> a maths problem? Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, obviously, these these big oil super majors profits um, make that make the headlines, but more from a, a business perspective. I don't think it's talked about how obscene the amount of money it is they make, and and I think in Southeast Asia, mainly the big players are national oil companies and and they're probably not making actually obscene amounts of money because they're not as i don't know profitable or as well run and um i think today i was reading about pertamina which is the indonesian national oil company and they're receiving um they pay a lot of subsidies on fuel for the consumer and the government's actually paid them back early which has helped their credit rating so um it's more more things like that about keeping... I mean, in Indonesia, it's anyway more about keeping the subsidies going and et cetera. But something interesting I did read was about after ExxonMobil's results, um, and I think it's commentator in America pointing out that Apple is making much more profit than ExxonMobil, and ExxonMobil you know, is providing energy, which is the key to many of our lives in, in the industrial world. And I thought that was kind of interesting, and, and the point that none of these you know, environmentalists or Marxists, whatever you call them, um, you know, you know, were they complaining when oil was uh, negative and these companies were, were, you know, making a loss? I think, you know, they've got short term memories. Yeah, they certainly were not. And they certainly weren't calling for, for funds to be pumped into the oil companies to keep the 30,000 jobs that were lost in the UK from oil and gas uh, to keep those afloat. And at that point, you mentioned about Apple. It's the same with Amazon. The all major supermarkets raked in huge profits during the pandemic, and nobody was accusing them of profiteering by giving people food during times when people needed food. I mean, the, the bottom line is that these super majors, yes, the profits are greatly inflated, and I think there needs. Well, I don't know what needs to be done about it, but I think they need to splash the cash. But ultimately, they're supplying a product that is integral to the world. The, to the way that we operate and it's a product that's in short supply i think that's the that's the distinction right is is that you know people I think the 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 optics of it people can uh choose not to opt for apple products right they could choose to shop at potentially different supermarkets but i think energy is seen as this kind of very large amorphous blob that but unfortunately that everyone needs and therefore it is it's really difficult to kind of opt out of that system as as things triple i think the distinction with the supermarkets and the pandemic right is that you know the price of bread didn't triple essentially overnight for people because it was more difficult to get you know i i understand it's it's a more complex equation than that but i think you know the anger is is righteous right and people are really struggling this is and it's the fact that it, it knocks on every other thing right it's the cost of delivering stuff it's the cost of getting things it's it's fertilizers it's, it's all of these things we're, we're so plugged into this ecosystem Dame's going to accuse me of radical Marxism. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm not against Marxists. I just, uh, I think, you know, I think people forget that the government also needs to shoulder blame for, it, you know, encouraging and attack. And, you know, the reason why they're making lots of money is because supply's been squeezed. They didn't invest. They became more efficient in the downturn. And now they're reaping the benefit of that. And it, it's easy to target the oil and gas companies. But, you know, the governments and the policymakers, you know, need to take shoulder responsibility too but they don't come out and say that they don't they just protect their own backsides don't they and so i don't know where i don't know where this goes now but understandably i, I saw in one of the articles that the average energy bill was going to be 
what, £3,600? Yeah. Was that a year? I mean, that's a lot of money. So you can understand why people are upset. And Yeah, I think that needs to be the, the message throughout all of this. If there's one underpinning uh, theme, it's that households are really struggling. It looks like it could get worse. So, yeah, something needs to be done and fast because people need some helping out but on that rather dour notes i think we're going to call it a, call it a day for today thank you uh thank you andrew thank you damon for for joining me and uh, i've been hamish penman thank you for listening out loud is the podcast from energy voice leading the global energy conversation bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.